our speaker today, Anne Mann. She's written a book called The Life of I. It's all about narcissism and the, the issues that are surrounding narcissism and the negative and the positive. It's, um, it's a bestseller. I encourage you to pick it up. It's a, it's a really interesting read and it's written in a very um, engaging way. Anne is um, a social commentator, she's a journalist, she's a writer, as I said. She's the author of Motherhood, How Should We Care For Our Children? So this is Life Scenes from a Country Childhood and soon to be published, well, not soon to be published, but it is published, The Life of I. Please join me in welcoming Anne to the stage. Thank you, Whitney. I didn't think we'd get through any introduction without at least one selfie. I thought it would be the, in the audience, however, not uh, with the uh, presenter. But I want to now flip from the uh, lighter side of narcissism in that introduction to the darker side. And I want to begin with the Norwegian killer, the mass killer, Anders Breivik, who, when he'd finished his killing spree in the island of Utoya, had killed 77 people, 69 of them young people, who'd gathered for a, a kind of Labor Party leftist camp. And when he was arrested, uh, he was surrounded by all these corpses, and the policeman came up to him and he held up a finger. And on the finger, there was a small cut, and he really wanted a Band-Aid. And the policeman said later he couldn't believe it, he was so intent, he said, on getting that Band-Aid. Later, other facts came to light about Breivik. Just before his crime, he'd posted a 1,500-word manifesto on the internet, which was a far-right kind of rant of anti-Islamic, anti-feminist and anti-left-wing ideas. He'd also posted photos of himself in a tight wetsuit to give better muscle definition because he was a self-confessed gym junkie and uh, had been using steroids for muscle definition. And his appearance, you might say, meant a lot to him. He'd had plastic surgery to remove a Nordic nose, a less than perfect nose in his eyes, and to give him a perfectly cleft chin. In fact, this young man was all but invisible in Norwegian society. He hadn't been able to establish any successful um, long-term relationships. Uh, he hadn't been able to make a career for himself. He'd returned home to live with his mother. So deep down, he felt an absolute failure. Now, as the psychoanalyst Adam Phillips says, one way to be unforgettable is to be unforgivable. And that was Breivik's path. In court, he described his crime as spectacular and note how he's embedding the spectators uh, in the way he describes it. And he was completely indifferent throughout the trial to the horrendous description of the injuries that he had inflicted while the families had to sit and listen to what had happened to their loved ones. But there was one particular moment where he began to tremble with emotion and then tears ran down his cheeks. And that was when they played him speaking to part of his manifesto, that is, he was weeping at the sound of his own voice. He was diagnosed with an extreme narcissistic personality disorder. Things like schizophrenia um, were dismissed because he was not psychotic. And most people with schizophrenia are not actually violent. Once he was in prison, he began to find all sorts of sources of grievance. The version of PlayStation, you know, the, it's a video game, uh, was too old and he felt that his coffee was served too cold. So 
right the way through, you can see this extraordinary self-focus. Now, Anders Breivik is an absolute extreme, but sometimes when we look at an extreme, it's a bit like seeing the scaffolding of a building, its architecture uh, outlined against um, a well-lit sky. So narcissism is on a spectrum. And if he's the malignant narcissist at one end, we've then got um, right the way through to the people who, who behave in simply obnoxious ways at home and at work. And we have quite subclinical, you know, very mild uh, versions in people who function very well in society, but are nonetheless are extremely unpleasant as bosses, um, are the philandering husband uh, or um, philandering wife and so on. But I want to emphasise that it's not just all the jokes about selfies aside, something that is to do with just being selfish or vain. It's actually a whole package, a whole syndrome, and it's an architecture of mind, you might say, like that image of the building. There's a whole architecture of mind, a whole syndrome, where the self is unstable. It has very high self-esteem, but it's not really secure. So it's as if this self is being constructed all the time on quicksand. So everything in that narcissist's life is conscripted into bolstering this grandiose uh, but unstable and fragile self. And the pursuit of, essential, uh, of attention is essential to them. It's a bit like an addiction where the hit of pride keeps them afloat. How is it identified? One of the standard measures for the more pathological form of narcissistic personality disorder, and this is, you know, in therapy territory, um, highlights such things as grandiosity, feeling special, more special than anybody else, uh, and a sense of being grandiose without really uh, commensurate achievements, so that this is not a person who actually has achieved a lot and is simply proud of it. A sense of entitlement is crucial, that they are more deserving than other people and a willingness to exploit others. And people at the receiving end of the narcissist often describe something like being, you know, like, like a lemon you've squeezed and then discarded, you know, as the remains. You've been used. Uh, this excessive self-focus where whatever is good for the self is good, when in reality, of course, there is always a struggle between the balance of self and other. Most crucially, the lack of empathy summed up, I thought, really beautifully in one of the titles of the um, academic articles I read called Others Exist For Me, which also became the title of my chapter in my book on sexual narcissism. There's also a real uh, capacity to retaliate when criticised or aggressed against. Most people don't like to be criticised, but at the same time, you won't necessarily retaliate with savagery um, if you are. But in the lab, in the psych lab, they found that someone higher in narcissism will be prepared to give others an aversive blast, a very loud noise if they're criticised, or even um, an electric shock. Their lives uh, are based on themselves always being in the right. It's a bit like that old line from the 70s movie, Love Story, you never have to say you're sorry. One of the other tests is the narcissistic personality inventory and is used to assess the much milder subclinical forms of narcissism. And it has all these uh, items which, uh, when you read them uh, cold, as I first did when I was researching the book, uh, I found quite hilarious. Like, the, you have to choose between the thought of ruling the world frightens the hell out of me. 
well, that's okay, I agree with that. But how about this? Versus if I ruled the world, it would be a much better place. I found it really hard to believe that anyone would tick that box, but apparently they do. I mean, Nelson Mandela, Obama, you know, there's a lot of able people out there. I really don't think, you know, if I took over, um, Gaza would be in much better shape. But <laughs> Another is, I am much like everybody else, or I am an extraordinary person. And I think we know how Breivik might have answered that one. Now, here's the thing. Narcissism has been around as long as uh, the Greek myth um, of, Narcissus, uh, of Narcissus, who used to gaze into the lily pond, uh, and he loved himself so much he could not tear his gaze away from himself. And the myth goes, he finally pined away, he starved to death, um, and he had caused great havoc through his life because he could not love all those who loved him, particularly the nymph Echo. Um, so it's been around a long time. I'm a great um, lover of literature, present and past, and certainly all through the 18th, 19th century, you will find... Uh, many wonderful descriptions in Jane Austen, George Eliot, um, uh, Dostoevsky, you'll find lots of descriptions of narcissists. But here's the thing. Scholars have been tracking narcissism in American college students and they've found it rising in each successive generation. It rose 30% from, 1929, uh, from 1979 sorry, to 2006. And most importantly, it rose most sharply in the 2000s. Then there was some other work done which is absolutely fascinating too, that empathy, you know, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, was also declining. And at the same time, a certain sort of insecure, avoidant pattern of uh, attachment to parents associated with lack of empathy and self-enhancement and uh, rather bullying behaviour was on the rise. So all of these developments, I suggest, are interrelated. Here's another troubling study. Harvard did a... Um, uh, some research recently into the values of young people. And I found to their horror that 80% thought that achievement and being a success in life um, around, uh, were the most important things uh, to aim at and to, to value. But only 20% valued caring for others. Now, there's nothing wrong with valuing achievement, but to have such a disparity between valuing achievement and success and caring for others, I suggest when all of them are going to either have children or they're going to have to care for old parents or care for each other uh, or care for the community is going to be a problem. What the researchers said was, you know, what the hell have we been teaching young people? We can see narcissism in rising rates of plastic surgery around the world, and Australia is no different. We have um, really significant numbers of people not only having plastic surgery here now, but also going to Thailand and Malaysia um, uh, every year where they can have a cheaper uh, kind of uh, makeover. There's a rising incivility, um, like internet trolling, that led to uh, Charlotte Dawson's suicide. It's a bit higher amongst men, usually, but that's not the case um, among celebrities. And of celebrities, it's the highest amongst reality TV stars. Uh, so, like Kim Kardashian, I don't know if uh, all of you know, um, I actually had um, a, the, one of the um, most fun weeks of my life where um, I donated, you know, you always, always have to make a sacrifice for your art, you know, or like doctors have to sometimes inject themselves with um, an ailment in order to find out whether uh, uh, some sort of vaccine will work. Well, I watched the Kardashians for a full week. <laughs> The, the drama centres essentially on whether Kimmy, as she's called, will take off her clothes. 
I wonder, <laughs> will she? So one of them was whether or not she'd do a uh, Playboy shoot with her clothes off. And of course, she's not that sort of a girl. Uh, but she did take off her clothes. So she turned out she was that sort of a girl. And then there was her mother who wanted to uh, get in on the act. So she wanted a nude photo shoot. So then the question was, would she take off her clothes? And she did. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And on it goes. And it's always, you know, that's the same kind of thing. So it's a mixture of exhibitionism, and that is, uh, unsurprisingly, the most important aspect of uh, female uh, celebrity stars. Akima is about to bring out a book of selfies. And uh, then... <laughs> so I'm waiting for that. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I actually became quite fond of them in the end. <laughs> on the other hand, I had a new sympathy. There's such a... There's, there's a kind of an enmeshed female presence that, you know, that um, the, I feel like joining the men's movement afterward, really. <laughs> Speaking of men, there's her husband, Kanye West. He's a rap singer. He, a self-described megastar. The word star is not quite enough for Kanye. It's megastar. Now, here's how Kanye West described himself. People get mad at me saying that I'm a creative genius, but it's just obvious. It's like factual. <laughs> I would write creative genius when I go through the airport. I would put that on customs forms, where you put, you know, what your title is, except for two reasons. It takes too long to write. <laughs> and sometimes I spell the word genius wrong. <laughs> On the other hand, according to Kanye, or at least according to a long, rambling 45-minute speech he made at his wedding, there is an, an oppressed minority in the world that we have not yet taken full account of, and that is celebrities. <laughs> they have to cope, just as those struggling for civil rights in the 60s had to cope with getting on, fighting to get on a bus and sit next, next to a white person to enter public spaces, they have to cope with a parapatsy. All the kind of photos and everything else, um, which, so you can see, narcissism often goes along with a sense of victimhood. So narcissism really is about a condition where the balance between the self and the other person's all gone wrong. In fact, when they do neuroscientific studies, you know, where you look at scans of the brain, they've even found that the narcissist, when they're resting, whereas for the non-narcissistic person, your mind does not still be um, uh, awake, as it were, and is, is, is still not lit up where um, it concerns the self. For the narcissist, those parts of the brain are still um, fully uh, switched on. There are all sorts of aspects about the narcissist that lead to other problems. They're not a great person to fall in love with. There might even be some people here in the audience who've especially come along to this because they've been at the receiving end of a narcissist. They're game players upon whom the rule of who is least interested uh, seems the right way to go, because then you have the most power. And they are much more likely to be unfaithful. They keep their eye out for other um, alternatives. One of the really leading researchers in the US, Keith Campbell, wrote a book called uh, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself. But you could just shove you know, the gender around and um, have When You Love a Woman Who Loves Herself. My favourite example from that was um, he, he, he gave uh, 
the example of a man who had, you know, have you had the photos of loved ones by your bed? Well, he had a photo of himself. <laughs> but more seriously, narcissism is implicated in sexual aggression. So when you have that moment, you know, we all know that date rape is actually the most familiar, um, the most common form uh, of, um, of rape. When you have that moment where uh, it's a question of whether you accept or don't accept a refusal or whether you start to use coercion, uh, it turns out with a lot of quite detailed work, um, narcissism uh, is really important. As we think about all the scandals we've had with the Australian Defence Force and we think about the scandals um, in various football codes, then we need to take seriously the fact that sexual aggressors are shown to have high degrees of narcissism in the way that we raise boys, for example. Let's think now, again, of a reasonably extreme example, but I think it's really interesting, of Elliot Roger. Many of you may have followed this case. He was the young man who was guilty of killing uh, some young women and some young men in California. And the reason is entirely narcissistic. He hacked to death three of his housemates and then, in a drive-by shooting, murdered um, some young women and another man. In several videos posted online, just like Breivik before his uh, crime, and this business of always wanting to be seen and be immortalised in the video that you post just prior to your crime is now becoming ubiquitous. But he's sitting in his BMW, a present given to him by his mother. He points to his $300 Armani sunglasses. He says how his car is better than any of the other boys at college. Then he speaks about being frustrated in still being a virgin and having been rejected by young women. This is what he says. I'm such a magnificent guy and I'm beautiful, civilised, intelligent, sophisticated, yet every single day I have to be insulted by hot, beautiful, blonde girls walking with stupid, obnoxious douchebags. I deserve them more. In another clip he says, he's perfect and fabulous and yet has been made to feel, and I'm quoting, so invisible as none of the girls pay any attention to me. Such an injustice. Unbelievable, he says. And then he goes out and commits his crimes. Narcissism has also been at the centre centre of cheating in sport. Uh, one of the chapters in my books on Lance Armstrong, and I found it absolutely fascinating, not only because I'm a complete Tour de France junkie, which I admit, so a lot of fun reading ab about the, the race, uh, but the really uh, interesting thing was the way in which narcissism played out in Lance Armstrong's character. One of his teammates, Tyler Hamilton, summed up Lance Armstrong's philosophy as whatever you were doing, those other fuckers are doing more. Now, Lance Armstrong was really one of the great citizen saints of America. He seemed to represent the American dream. He'd overcome testicular cancer. He was a friend of presidents. He was on the red carpet. He um, dated celebrities. He was worth 100 million. He'd won seven Tour de France's by the time he was actually exposed as a serial doper, a cheat, a bully, uh, and a quintessential narcissist. He, it turned out, had used friends uh, mercilessly, wherever he wanted to get to, he used them up and then he'd just discard them and jettison them from the team rather than in any way show loyalty to them. His cancer was actually as a result of steroid misuse. And uh, when he went back to road racing, rather than you know, realise that uh, 
uh, he had uh, made such a mistake in, in, in using steroids, he went back to doping and cheating with a vengeance. And when the test for performance-enhancing drugs became better, he resorted to blood transfusions. So the team bus for US Postal, you know, that was his team, would be stopped mid-tour and where all the other riders who were not doping uh, were getting exhausted and were having to ride uh, in an honest way to the, the, the truth of their natural ability and endurance, Armstrong was actually lying on the floor of a bus or a floor of a hotel room with a bulging red bag of his own blood which had been taken out uh, at the peak of his training when he was full of red blood cells, full of oxygen-bearing red blood cells, which are so crucial riding up the mountains. And that would be coursing into his veins and the rest of the riders in his team, uh, ditto. Uh, and so then they would get on their bikes and he was able to ride up mountains, and people commented later, it was amazing, uh, with his mouth closed. He wasn't even panting. But it was to do with this uh, dishonest misuse uh, and manipulation of oxygen in the blood. During that period of Armstrong's dominance, not only did he lead members of his team into doping, he really coerced them into doing so. And Tyler Hamilton has written a whole um, a, a book about that. And the speed of the tour actually increased by 20%. If anyone threatened to expose him, he was uh, absolutely ferocious in defending his self-interest and threatened legal action. Of course, if you're confronting someone who uh, has... Uh, uh, 100 million behind him. He was actually going to buy the Tour de France at one point. But, uh, so he was a very powerful character um, to reckon with. But narcissism is a really a short-term strategy and sooner or later, usually, people uh, see what the narcissist is all about. They begin to have problems and, this is, and people expose them. And it was uh, exactly this with Lance Armstrong, and in the end he ended up having to go into Oprah, the modern confessional box, and he, he, uh, he told um, the shameful truth about his life. So now we get to um, the question of what some of the causes might be. Now, you know, how, we must be all thinking, certainly I was thinking as I was reading all these examples, um, how has parenting changed? And that was one of the big, really interesting uh, questions that I focused my book on. And I want to now give you a case of how it might have changed. Consider the father, Jeremiah Heaton. He's from the US and he went... Um, uh, when his daughter asked him whether she could be a real princess, as opposed to, you know, just wearing a princess costume, he actually said yes. And then he set about making it true. So he consulted Dr Google, which, as you know, is excellent for hypochondriacs to diagnose rare tropical diseases... <laughs> But it turns out it's also very useful to find undiscovered countries. He found a bit of unclaimed turf, about 800 square miles of it, between Sudan and Egypt. And on his seventh birthday, he went across and planted a flag, and he claimed it. He proclaimed himself king and his daughter princess of northern Sudan. As yet, there's been no approval from the United Nations. We're waiting. But Mr Heaton said he was reaching out to the African Union and he felt they'd look favourably upon his claim. He said, I wanted to show my kids I would literally go to the ends of the earth to make their wishes and dreams come true. As a parent, you sometimes go paths, down paths, that you never thought you would. Or perhaps should. 
Welcome to the world of the indulgent, omnipotent parent. Now, Sigmund Freud thought that becoming a parent awakened the narcissism in all of us. I'm not as pessimistic as Freud, because I see a lot in parenting uh, that is very different, a decentering from self, overcoming narcissism, as a matter of fact, uh, turning up to netball at 5am in the morning, uh, getting up um, at a similar hour to get, take her children to swimming lessons um, if they're really keen on uh, swimming rather than sleeping in and sipping a latte. But nonetheless, as this father shows, there can be a corruption of those good impulses to support your children. There's a lot said about helicopter parenting um, and it's hardly surprising that we have books written called Too Much of a Good Thing and the Price of Privilege or Michael Carr Gregg recently uh, decrying what he called crappy uh, parenting, the lack of the N-word, meaning the lack of the word no. But I have to say that I don't agree with the simple notion, having done a heck of a lot of research for this book, that it's just the kids are spoiled. That rise in insecure attachments I mentioned earlier have long been known to be associated with parents who don't really tune in to the child uh, when the child has needs. And a lot of the really interesting work about helicopter parenting and narcissism shows they're actually tuning in at the moments when the child is going to be high achieving. So this is a child who has to be a star, who has to be at the top of the class, who has to be the star of the sports team. And they're coming along perhaps to the, the, the sports day, but not actually supporting the child necessarily at all the... Uh, uh, more difficult moments and more failed moments, perhaps, of the child's life. This is a child who gets too much of what they don't need, like material possessions uh, and all this emphasis on achievement and too little of what they do need, which is um, the kind of uh, parenting which builds character, sets limits and has an ethical framework uh, of values to live by and encourages children to be self-critical, to certainly to be self-reflective and to have self-respect rather than this holy grail of parenting that we've been sold for so many years, which is high self-esteem, which actually turns out to be the essence uh, of narcissism. So just giving yourself, your child high self-esteem a caution is that many of the, um, those who are incarcerated criminals have actually very high self-esteem. Um, low self-esteem isn't great, uh, but... Yeah, there are, uh, as with all things, uh, there is a balance. But it's not just parenting, because parents don't exist in a vacuum. In fact, they are responding to a much wider culture. Here I like Christopher Lashes, who wrote the first really interesting book called The Culture of Narcissism um, back in um, you know, uh, several decades ago. And he said that the prevailing culture brings out the narcissism in all of us, and I think that's right, whether it's the social media, um, whether it's celebrity culture, the desire for fame, for example, is much greater amongst young people, but amongst everybody um, than it was. Um, society is, is really changing. And the two underlying seismic shifts that we really need to pay attention to, according to, you know, really looking at the hard evidence, um, is a kind of selfish individualism and a hyper-competitive capitalism. It's more significant, it's higher in societies which have the, the most competitive forms of capitalism and what we call neoliberalism or a, a kind of free market system. But it's also this selfish individualism. And I want to here draw attention just to capture that. Uh, a very popular best-selling author, I was astonished to learn that something like a third of Americans have all read her, some of you may have read her, but Anne Rand. She actually wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Now, how's that for a title for a narcissist? That's great. She's also very narcissistic in her own life, incidentally. Her, her biography is fascinating. 
Uh, but in one of her novels, she said this, I am done with the monster of we. Now I see the face of God and I raise this God over the earth. This God will grant them joy and peace and pride. This God, this one word, I. So to me, that's an extraordinary statement of this, you know, with the triumph of the self. But she was also a great supporter and propagandist for the prevailing economic system. She once addressed a, a group of wealthy businessmen in America, amongst the most wealthy, and it was called Sanction of the Victims. And she, the victims she was uh, talking about were these wealthy businessmen. They were the most oppressed group, she said, um, in American society. Now, we've had told to us a, for a long time that a rising tide will float all boats. And uh, under this philosophy, under neoliberalism, it's uh, most true in America, but it's certainly true in Australia too, uh, inequality has grown exponentially. During the 1950s, for example, CEOs earned about 25 to 30 times what the employees did. By the neoliberal area, it was between somewhere about 300 to 500 times as much. And the three richest men in the world were worth as much as the poorest 600 million. So what you might say, it doesn't matter. Well, some really, I think, stunning new work on wealth uh, and inequality and the rise of narcissism by a psychologist called Paul Piff suggests it does matter. In fact, he's blunt enough to call it the asshole effect. He's American. We'd call it the asshole effect. <laughs> so what's the asshole effect? This is now, we're a long way away from Anders Breivik. We're a long way away from Lance Armstrong. This is not the pathological end of narcissism. This is a mild subclinical, the everyday um, form. People are functioning perfectly well, but, you know, they're assholes. <laughs> As we ponder Joe Hockey's budget... you clapping. I didn't say it. <laughs> and his division of the world into lifters and leaners. As we learn from Oxfam that the richest 1% of Australians now own the same wealth as the bottom 60%, we ought to think about this guy, Paul Piff, and his studies. What he found was as they grow wealthier, they are more likely to feel entitled, to become meaner, more likely to exploit others and even to cheat. He had a lot of really interesting experiments. One of them was really simple. He just had researchers at crossroads and at pedestrian crossings. And he uh, worked out which vehicles didn't give way. Hmm. High-status vehicles, he found, the later the model and the flash of the car, you know, the Mercedes, the big four-wheel drive, were four times more likely to cut off drivers sputtering along in an old bomb. <laughs> now, as a driver who is mainly been in old bombs. I found this research very satisfying. <laughs> Be careful when you go to the zebra crossing. Look carefully, left and right, not just for a car, but what make and model, because you are three times more likely to be mowed down by an expensive later model car. Here's the interesting thing. People in old bombs, least expensive sort of cars, always stopped. So, interesting. So he went on. In the laboratory, the richest students were more likely to consider stealing and benefiting from things to which they were not entitled than those from a middle class or lower class background. 
even people just primed to feel rich with various, you know, kind of um, signals in the laboratory were more likely to put their fat little hand in a sweets jar, which was designed for the children in the lab next door, than children who were not so primed, or people who were primed, sorry, um, to feel uh, disadvantaged. So he was looking at it and he said, OK, so the, the key issue seems to be a sense of entitlement. When you become wealthy, even creating ideas of being wealthy uh, can create feelings of increased um, entitlement. So how long does it take? Here's the thing, as long as a game of Monopoly. Uh, one of the uh, little um, fascinating experiments he did was to have on camera two people playing uh, Monopoly. He gave one person, let's call him Joe... $2,000 to begin with and $200 every time he passed go. Uh, the other guy, um, let's call him Jeff, gets $100 uh, when he passes go and $1,000 to begin with. So it's stacked right from the beginning. Now, Joe gets a Rolls Royce as a token and he can roll two dice at once while poor old Jeff gets one roll. Jeff gets a humble little elf shoe too, whereas Joe gets you know, this, this really flash-looking Rolls Royce. So having created these conditions of advantage, they think feelings of entitlement and superiority may well show up. And indeed it does. Um, Joe starts to smirk. He starts to... This is the reflecting dominant behaviour amongst primates, if you've ever seen any of that research. Uh, his posture balloons. He takes up more space. Uh, he begins smacking his piece down really hard. He then grabs poor old Jeff's token and moves it for him. <laughs> By the end of the game, he's kind of ruthless and he's just, you know, in there for the kill. The reporter who wrote all this up for New York magazine was just stunned by seeing just how quickly an ordinary person, because in this case, Joe with the Rolls-Royce token is not a really wealthy person in real life, but just how quickly um, it can... Uh, have the effect of uh, increasing a sense of entitlement. Now, what about... That's just a game. What about the real life? Well, it turns out that in PIF's research, and I've actually checked with um, some heads of charity here and they say they find similar things, that in wealthier postcodes, they gave less as a proportion of their income than people in poorer postcodes. Uh, I heard that from Tim Costello and World Vision, that, um, in, uh, for example that in Frankston they'll give more than in Turak. I know you're in Sydney, but you'd have an equivalent of a poorer suburb versus a, um, somewhere in the North Shore. Uh, wealthy people too, when they were told they'd have a uh, photograph taken, immediately rushed to the mirror to see what they'd look like. Uh, people who were not wealthy didn't. Uh, asked to draw symbols like circles, they saw themselves in as a larger circle and they were less empathetic with people in need. Unless, so it shows it's actually not you know, set in concrete, they were shown an image of someone who was like a child in poverty, someone who, who was in need. So it was actually able to be uh, manipulated. It was able to be changed. So it raises a question of how we are... You know, I, I was thinking last year when we were briefly the most wealthy nation in the world because our dollar was very high. We're still amongst one of the most wealthy nations in the world and I was trying to figure out why it was that we were at the very same moment as this news came out, thinking about cutting foreign aid. <laughs> so I thought to myself, how, you know, how is this possible? And I think that this kind of research is telling us uh, uh, why. So it as we become wealthier, it becomes possible 
to think about uh, whether it's asylum seekers or we think about the, the poor and the vulnerable in a certain kind of way. Um, and indeed, we can have a budget such as we've had which makes the hardest uh, cuts hit the bottom half as opposed to those who can really pay for it um, in the upper uh, reaches of society. So it cultivates, wealth cultivates attitudes against redistribution and for privilege, you might say. Of course, we have, you know, if you think about priming in the laboratory wealthy people for having empathy for someone with uh, uh, poverty, you know, a child in poverty, uh, you can think about how we treated people with a disability after we'd had a long campaign by Bill Shorten and others, um, uh, Rhonda Galbally and many of the disability sector people, uh, Bruce Bonahady, and we actually became much more empathetic to the very real plight of the people with a disability but also the families caring for them. So I suggest that it's not set in concrete, so it's really worth drawing it out and pointing out um, what we have. We can either be drawn by our political leaders towards generosity and altruism um, and... Uh, 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 instead of being drawn towards selfishness and the hip pocket nerve. Most importantly, I want to raise the question as to whether or not the narcissist is really being produced by our economic system, whether they're really a character for our times, rather than an aberration and caused by social media, which I think is rather a furphy in that it is there and certainly narcissists will use social media in a very narcissistic way, whether it's Twitter or whether it's um, uh, Facebook, but, in fact, I suggest that's more of a megaphone for existing narcissistic qualities than a cause in and of itself. Rather, um, I think the really important question is how narcissists are more materialistic, more oriented to achievement and self-enhancement, they are more acquisitive, they've even been shown to be much more oriented to buying brand names than they are um, to uh, having a more serviceable but, um, you know, no brand uh, item. So, in a way, they are really uh, a, a character who is very uh, suitable for the kind of economy that we have. And I think the problem of narcissism is much larger than just living a because-I'm-worth-it lifestyle. The real problem for me, when I was writing this book, the, the, the big looming question over everything I was looking at in the research is that is it possible that we become so narcissistic that like Narcissus staring into that lily pond, we will be looking into all the lovely things of the consumer society which reflect us better at, back um, at the world and better than we really are, all those self-enhancing things, um, the large carbon footprint and so on. Will it be that we will become so self-indulgent and enchanted and intoxicated by all we see in this consumer lily pond that we are not prepared to face and to do something about the really looming disaster of climate change. So that's my question. In the face of that impending tragedy, can we actually turn this society of the selfie around where narcissism is rampant and turn it back towards values of altruism, generosity, care for each other, and care for the planet that we share. Thank you. Thank you, Anne.
Thank you, Anne. That was, um, that was great. Um, just before I kick off with a question, I just want to encourage you to um, to step up to the mics and um, and 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 wait your turn. I just want to narcissism as a concept or as a condition, I guess, <laughs> has degrees. Um, what do you think drives an individual's narcissism to be, on one hand, uh, destructive, but another's to be constructive? Mm. Uh, well, I wouldn't think that narcissism... That there's a lot of talk in psychology of something called healthy narcissism. Um, I argue in my book that that's a furphy. In fact, we should keep narcissism for the more pathological or even the more just simply noxious or, um, as I've shown, um, some amusing examples. Healthy narcissism, however, is what they're trying to talk about is things like self-confidence, um, the ability to get up on a stage, um, the sense of self-efficacy. And, and we do want to teach our children the, um, the kind of ability to climb back up again after a knock. Uh, we do want people to feel pride, a just pride, um, but that just pride in your achievements is very different from hubris. And what narcissism has is hubris. You know, it's gr a great acclaim for the self, like saying you're a creative genius um, and a mega star. That, that's the, <laughs> the kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a grandiose claim. But in Australia, actually, we had, we're, we're losing it, I think. But we've had for a long time, but it's still there in the, in the background. We've had for a long time some fantastic ordinary people speak for this, a poser, have tickets on themselves, you know, too big for their boots, um, up themselves, you know, and so on. So we, we, we've actually had lots of ways of positioning someone um, who was suggesting they were grander than they really are. And that's the, you know, the kind of the, the milder end of it. But people who are, you know, all of us have a self-serving bias, all of mm. us may present ourselves a little better than we are, but the narcissist does that to such an extent they alienate other people. So in the end, it's self-destructive as well as destructive of the people around them. And as you can see in some of my examples, um, it's really um, in the most pathological form, uh, very destructive um, indeed. Do, do narcissists know that they are, in fact, narcissists? This movement suggests that at least some of them do, that they will answer a straightforward question, are you a narcissist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they will. They say, so there's a 40-point questionnaire, but maybe you should just ask... You know, is it? Uh, in general, however, there is a you know there's a questionnaire. The question is where you uh, where you you stand on it. You know what how how high um, you score. Uh, but um, it, it's it's something where you know if every human being is going to have faults, we're human, all too human. So there's a way in which we all need to be self-reflective, to think you've got something wrong, that perhaps in an argument you know, you've been unfair. That you know there's, there's an endless ongoing process, um, you know, a good marriage or a good partnership, a good friendship, you'll often correct each other. Um, good parenting will correct a child. Hmm. You know, a lot of it's about moral behaviour. Whereas somehow, if you look at the trajectory of uh, Western parenting, you read a lot of, especially the, um, the, the sillier end of it, it's about just making a child feel good about themselves. Hmm. But, you know, if, if you said you wanted a self-respecting child, then that child really has to earn that respect a bit too. It's not just granted to them, no matter the fact that they've just trashed someone else's living room. I've got a point on the parenting, but I want to throw it open to the floor. I think, is anyone 
there? No. No, one, can't see no one's you. there. There may okay. not even be an audience. Yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> snow blindness up here, you know. <laughs> there could be lots of people or no one. Um, yes, please step up to the microphone and state your name and question, please. My name is David Chong. And uh, the question is, how would um, the society that you are hoping and developing in terms of uh, managing the narcissist instead of letting the narcissist just yeah. take it from, how would it look like um, in terms of working with the adult who already have a very strong um, attachment history um, in today's society? Uh, are you saying how would you deal with someone who's narcissistic who ha you know, and ha how they are helped? Our tendencies is to perhaps uh, shame yes. yeah. And the experience of uh, controlling the narcissist is the experience of shame. Um, so the, what you're talking about is developing a society that has altruism. How, how does it look like for you in mm. terms of for us? Yes. Society supporting that yes. group. Yes, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, I think that we need to think about the antidote to narcissism being empathy. And empathy is that ability to look beyond the interests of the self and to place yourself in another person's shoes. And I think it is um, uh, uh, really the most crucial kind of quality to develop. So how might we develop it? Well, certainly with parenting um, secure attachments where parents are quite responsive to children when they're um, in the early years, but also are able to set limits effectively um, and uh, are, are not you know, wanting the child to be the great star and all the rest of it. Um, sort of ordinary good enough parenting. Um, but we need to, it's not just about parenting, it's about schools, like someone told me yesterday how uh, the, they have had their child in grade six do the third unit on me, which, you know, is, is so um, excessive. So in schools, instead, we should have... <laughs> you mean the subject's called me, on me? Oh, yeah, three units on me, you know. The, uh, <laughs> one wasn't is enough. There a, is there a little unit in there called the selfie perfecting it? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and in fact, there is, um, there is no unit on we, apparently. So, <laughs> so and then another was about a sports team where there was a kind of, uh, you know, there, there were so many photographs and there were annuals and there were, you know, I mean, just complete overkill in terms of making the children feel special. So not cultivating a sense of entitlement, not making, you know, so much of things. But um, more to the point, there's a, a fantastic program called The Roots of Empathy. And this program actually takes, does something really simple but interesting, takes a baby and the parent into a classroom on a regular basis. And the children, this is in primary school, have to figure out what the non-verbal baby is feeling. They have to reflect on their own emotions. They have to empathise with the baby who hasn't got language. And they find that after this program, you know, done over many weeks, they, the children are not as, the, the bullying drops, they are more empathetic, they treat each other more kindly. So it's a kind of emotional literacy program. Uh, and that, I think, you know, if you think about that Harvard study, is mm. where we're going wrong. We need to reorient to the way we treat each other and less about high self-esteem and more about respecting one another on an equal footing. Mm. Hi, my name's Kate Rowe. Very good talk, thank you. Do you think, considering that this is, twas ever thus, that narcissism has been it's just how we are as human beings, that, that um, the explosion, if you like, of it culturally uh, and therefore individually, has changed, say, in the last 20, 30 years, 
with the, with the explosion of the uh, new technology and social media? Uh, well, I think... Look, I think that it has, and it's, it's one of the aspects. I think there's a change... Uh, there are deeper changes, as I tried to outline in my talk, though. I think if you didn't have those changes and you did have Facebook... You know, a lot of Facebook, actually, if you uh, look carefully, it's a lot of people using it to post... Uh, for extended family who live elsewhere, a picture of a toddler or... Uh, there's a lot of connection as well as disconnection, mm. I suppose I'd say. Um, there's a lot of posting of worthy causes. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's not as uh, simplistic. Um, uh, I think it's often a, offered as a simplistic, um, so, you know, kind of answer as to why we've become so narcissistic. But that said, the, uh, the, the, a degree of the visual culture, I think, has really influenced us. Um, there's a fascinating study from the, of diaries by an historian uh, looking at diaries of girls in the late 19th century and then diaries of girls again in adolescence girls in the late 20th century. And in the 19th century, they were talking about things like whether or not they were mean to Aunt Bessie <laughs> and whether or not they, um, you know, they tried... It was essentially a, a, a kind of character program, they were, a moral improvement they were concerned with. Whereas... In the 90s, the improvement was all about the body. So that was how they were looked at. And they wanted to be thinner and they wanted to have a makeover and they wanted to impress people via what they looked like. And now there's this incredible pressure to be hot on Facebook and to get liked for, you know, posting, um, and posting photos. Mm. Uh, so that I, I... But I essentially still see it as more of a megaphone than an actual cause. And I think that certainly this kind of really um, selfish individualism that overtook Western society and particularly our economy. It's a really interesting thing. They found that uh, cheating in, say, college students um, is more common in societies which have a more competitive form of capitalism. So even a less competitive form of capitalism um, had less... Uh, students who would cheat. And then when they really examined the reasons why, it was that these children had been raised with the values of self-enhancement, you know, you're kind of working... Uh, sorry, a walking um, CV, you're a, you know, you have a profile even when you're three years old, you, you know, it's... There's something really wrong with the way we uh, position ourselves mm. in being always seen in the eyes of others. Um, and above all, I'd say that there needs to be a shift from the pursuit of attention to giving attention. Uh, one of the most shocking things which really stayed with me as I was doing the research was not just one, but several uh, people from nursing homes and in the um, geriatric area uh, have people there, who old people, who are never visited by adult children. So I would say a narcissistic society has a care deficit and... You know, one way of thinking about that is that when you're pursuing attention for yourself all the time, there is not that ability that we all need, especially when we're vulnerable, um, when we're actually what Joe Hockey calls a leaner, um, when we are legitimately leaners, when we're sick, we're vulnerable, we're old, um, we do not have uh, that... Uh, pe people are not swinging their attention to other mm. people in the way that, you know, we need them to do so. Would you like to...? Hi, thank you for your talk. My name's Michelle. Um, I think my question has sort of been dealt with by the first audience member, but I just wanted to add a, a little bit and explore it a bit further, mm. um, which is how do we deal how do we deal with this 
destructive problem or what's becoming quite destructive. Um, I think you touched on it and you said the problem is empathy and I would agree because um, in terms of the increased entitlement with people mm. who are wealthier, it seem, that seems to suggest to me at least that um, they think that, okay, well, if I can do this, I'm getting more money, I'm putting more work in and therefore mm. everybody should be able to do it too. And then you touched upon the notion that when people were, were seeing, you know, some disability um, you know, a person with a disability, then they could distinguish between it and they can say, well, okay, that person has a disability, I can empathise with them a little bit more. Yes. But everybody else, you know, if I, mm. they're just not mm. working as hard. And that seems to be, you know, the mindset amongst, you know, this consumerist capitalist society. So how do we, how do we deal with this sort of in terms of, um, you mm. know, creating more empathy, not only in children as we raise them, yes. um, but mm. in, this, in this society where, mm. you know, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, again, thank you. It's a really great question. Well, uh, leadership. We need political leadership um, of a very different <laughs> kind than we're getting um, in this idea of the leaders. And I'm leaders. not at the ABC anymore, but I'm still not going to touch it. <laughs> well, I am going to touch it. I am going to touch it. What we are seeing with this ideology uh, of leaders and lifters is actually, that is Anne Rand, that is Anne Rand that is being imported from the US. We had Jo Stiglitz out here recently saying, do not go there. I will say to you now, do not go there because that society in terms of health, in terms of all of these aspects, um, uh, we do not want to um, import it. And in fact, Anne Rand had this idea running right through her novels of the producers and the parasites. And leaners and lifters is exactly that idea. So it needs to be combated as as powerfully and beautifully as Graeme Innes, the exiting commissioner for um, Human Rights Commissioner on Disability, um, did. He's blind. He said, look, when I lean on my wife's arm as I walk across the road, I'm a leaner. When I support her at night with a cuddle after work, after she's had a bad day, I'm a lifter. All of us are leaners and lifters, and all of us are actually neither independent nor dependent. We are interdependent. Some of our life, we're uh, independent, as my mother was when she supported me as a sole parent, um, and she's now legitimately a leaner as she leans on her walking frame, but also on her children and be supported. So we, we have to actually um, demand the kind of political leadership which honours values um, that have been in Australian society for a very long time, but we need to excavate them mm. because they're being buried under this overlay of this foreign import. And if that foreign import was a car, you'd call it a lemon. <laughs> and um, I think we have, one, we have time for one more question. Yeah. Hi, my name's Chris. Uh, you've alluded to societal narcissism. Would you simply comment on ISIS as the epitome of religious narcissism? Yes. Look, I, uh, my first idea for the book actually was to write something which was both contemporary and uh, historical, uh, but it was really about malignant narcissism where the what appears to be a conscience, you know, what Freud called the superego, but the conscience um, is uh, really allowing all sorts of destructive forces to come forward, but be presented um, as uh, an ideology of virtue. And I have seen that time and again over history. It's true, for example, uh, in the Russian Revolution with the Bolsheviks, um, that very quickly turned it, um, to 
murderous um, behaviour. Um, it's certainly true during um, the Nazi regime. So, so there's many ways you can think about institutionalised religious or political narcissism. But in this book, I wanted it to be about contemporary culture, so I didn't um, you know, take that approach. I decided to uh, reject that. But uh, that's a, it's a really interesting question, and I agree. And, and when, once you claim all good for the self, then do you think that other people, other viewpoints, have value? And once you deny the fact that they have value, once that you deny and that they are human, then you, once you've dehumanised them, then anything is possible. Mm, indeed. Um, well, with that, um, we're going to have to wrap it up. I apologise. We could stay here all day. I think you agree. It's a fascinating topic and, and it's been a great um, afternoon listening to you as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.